0: I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Katie Calvoda of AAPI Victory Alliance. As the 2024 presidential election cycle heats up, there are two topics that are bound to be an important part of the discourse. That's gun violence and disinformation and misinformation. Now disinformation and misinformation are two sides of the same coin, and we do get into the differences in this episode. But Katie joins me to discuss the nuances of those topics and we also talk about how important it is for political campaigns to engage with the AAPI community and of course engage in authentic ways. We talk about what genuine and effective engagement looks like and why it's important for campaigns to forge true partnerships with the AAPI community now without treating community engagement as an afterthought. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Katie Calvoda of AAPI Victory Alliance. Katie Calvoda, welcome. Thank you for having me today. By the way, I know congratulations are in order. I wanted to, to, to mention this, but you were just elected the AAPI Victory Alliance's um, board chair. Is that correct?
1: That's right. That's right. I was elected by my fellow board members and uh, the my term begins July 1st. Excellent. Well, congratulations.
0: Thank you. Yeah, and I, and I was hoping to center our conversation around two topics today in relation to the AAPI community, and that is misinformation and disinformation, which are often confused, but they're they're not the same. They're close, but not the same. And then gun violence, right? But before we jump into those, I wanted to talk about the fact that we're on the cusp of another major election cycle, the 2024 presidential election cycle, and the AAPI community is often overlooked in those political conversations. You know, despite the fact that Asian Americans are the fastest growing group in the country. There's just so often left out. And I know myself as a black woman and, you know, being in the black community, I know what it looks like when a campaign or a political movement or a politician overlooks and thinks about my community as an aside, as an afterthought. And I know yeah. what it looks like when they get it right. Right. Um, yeah. and I'm just curious for the AAPI community, how do we know what does it look like when it's done correctly? What What do we see? What would we see? Yeah, well, we would see representation in senior levels
1: of the campaign. So we have people not just doing outreach to our community, but we really need representation at the highest levels of uh, the campaign's hierarchy. So advisors to the principal, you know, whether they're running for Congress or Senate or president, we need to see members of our community uh, represented in his core team, his or her core team. And it doesn't mean that we need one face. We actually need many, many different faces because our community is very complicated. It's very nuanced and we're not a monolith. So to get it right, out of the gate, a campaign needs to have representation and true representation. In addition to that, we also need significant investment and a commitment to these investments early in the cycle. And what I mean by that is so often we are considered the margin of victory. And when that happens and campaigns realize that in the, you know, 11th hour, they start spending money to uh, get votes from our community but that doesn't work that way because we're talking about many, many different languages, many, many different mediums in which you have to do the outreach. We don't live in you know um, one particular neighborhood, we're urban, rural, you know, and everything in between. So the outreach effort is actually so much more complicated than campaigns anticipate. And doing it at the last minute often leads to very shallow efforts that don't really speak to our community and drive them out to the polls. So two things, representation and serious commitment of capital early, early in the process. That's what makes a successful campaign for our community. You know, we've seen it work for a variety of different campaigns. And
0: we know that people who know and people who hire people who know get it. Right, right. And that's what I mean by an afterthought. I mean, you, you can actually see it happening in the campaign, you know, in the campaigns during the, you know, let's just say, a presidential election cycle where focus will happen at the very last minute. Have you seen improvement over the years, though? Yes, a little bit. I mean,
1: when candidates understand the landscape and when they have good advisors and many more of AAPI politicos are now working at that the very uh, more visual uh, campaigns, more high profile campaigns across the country. And as they get hired and, and hired early on, they start to develop, you know, the right landscape, the right infrastructure for outreach. And so we are seeing more of that awareness uh, put together, you know, and even people at the DNC and other, you know, higher levels of, you know, the political parties have also hired uh, API operatives. And so it has definitely shown an increase in terms of visibility, but we have a long ways to go. There are many, many Uh, districts across the country with large AAPI contingencies and um, we're still looked at as an afterthought and so some very you know coordinated campaign for AAPI voters that is not just sporadic you know during campaign cycles but uh, is an evergreen strategy 365 days a year every year uh, and not just during political
0: years yeah yeah you now let's go on and talk about misinformation and disinformation, because you know, as we as the cycle, the election cycle heats up, that's gonna be a huge issue. Actually, it's always an issue, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, always. Um I I personally saw, and this is just anecdotal, an uptick following the 2016 election cycle, particularly in regards to the AAPI community, and then the 2020 election cycle, of course. And it seems to have taken on two main flavors. For one, I think during the 2020 cycle, there was a lot of misinformation and disinformation around um, trying to paint Democrats as, um, by by conservatives, as being soft on China, right? And there were lots of dog whistles about that during the campaign on the conservative side, I think. And then, of course, after the the pandemic, there was a lot of blame, I mean, being placed misinformation around blaming Asians for the COVID pandemic, right? And that yeah. was that was very very stark, and it was, it was actually really dangerous, right? Yeah. When I step back and think about that from a political perspective, what do you think the aim of that disinformation and misinformation was? Because it's not politically savvy. Yeah, you know, it's very complicated
1: uh, with our international relations with China. Um And so that, I think, has to be stripped away from national politics a little bit. And I don't think that those two things are often coordinated. You'll see harsh rhetoric on both sides of the aisle when it comes to uh, China uh, and activities uh, in the Pacific. So I don't necessarily know that any strategist is really conflating the two, what's happening uh, within the U.S. and then uh, external to the U.S., Um, but they create a sense of confusion and chaos in our community that allows, you know, uh, folks who are uh, very hardened, right, to be empowered to channel a narrative that may have been seen as fringe before, but now they might have a stronger following because of this sort of chaos. And, you know, if you think of politics, you know, as an analogy to like battle or or warfare or something like that, right? The war over voters, the concept of the fog of war really takes root. And so I think that was what really contributed to the proliferation of misinformation and disinformation in our community is this sense of chaos. You know, there was a lot going on. People were trying to parse truth from fiction and, you know, being able to do so, across different mediums, YouTube, WeChat, Kakao, you know, all kinds of different social media platforms, mainstream media on top of that, newspapers, being able to confront misinformation uh, on all of those battlegrounds, uh, battlefields is very, very challenging. And it it caught us off guard, I think, as a community um, because we didn't even have that media infrastructure in place to be able to activate, right? So um, being caught in the fog of war, being caught in a systemic uh, lack of infrastructure where, you know, our communities have access to uh, media sources, you know, to be able to research the veracity of different accounts, as well as hearing misinformation. From people that they formally trusted, people with authority, right? The President of the United States was calling the pandemic a China virus. And that led to, a, uh, that elevated it to a whole nother level. And as a community, we were caught flat footed, and we really didn't have the resources to properly combat, you know, uh, all of those things.
0: Right. So you said something that I wanted to to step back and talk about a bit more, because I think it's a common misconception and maybe on my part, too. You said that on both sides. Right. And I said something about conservatives, you know, painting Democrats as soft on China. But I think that you're right in that. And please correct me if I, I misheard you. But I think you're correct in that there was an increase in harsher rhetoric on both sides. Right. Mm-hmm. Both conservatives and Democrats. Can you parse that out for me a bit more? Yeah. I mean, you know, there would be comments. Uh, from
1: an example would be Tim Ryan of Ohio, right, where his particular district is not necessarily California or New York uh, progressives, but he has a Midwestern, you know, contingency or constituency. And his rhetoric during his campaign was very hard on China. And similarly, when you look at, you know, races, like particularly in California, in the 45th district, for example, which houses Little Saigon in Orange County, there was a lot of focus on communism, right? And how China represented the power of communism in today's modern time. And so there was a lot of back and forth and rhetoric of, uh, against China and you know um, distancing yourself from China. And so it was used as a political weapon where it was convenient and where the constituencies are really sensitive to communism, and so it was you know it was played out where it needed to play out, and we saw it locally as a, a local you know issue for these campaigns. But indeed, it was something that we saw, you know, from both sides of the aisle. And it really is something that as a community and among all of us AAPI advocacy groups, we really need to uh, educate our elected officials on how to better express those opinions and how to better lay the groundwork for being anti-China and not being anti-Chinese Americans or Asian Americans, right? To disconnect that conversation between China's uh, foreign policy and the people that live here uh, in the United States as Asian Americans.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a really nuanced thing to do, right? Although, though though yes. they should do it. But, you know, you're right. I remember that Tim Ryan ad, and I remember feeling not great. <laughs> <laughs> You know, to put it put it lightly, seeing that ads, you're you're absolutely right. I had forgotten about that. Um, but you know, I mean, we have to be honest. I think that when you're when you have a campaign in the Midwest or in the South and you invoke certain ideas and thoughts around any group, right? But we're talking about the AAPI community. I mean, you can't overlook the fact that it that is done with a purpose. Yeah, you know, it's done with a purpose to and, and the same thing happens with the black community, right? Um in the Latino community. And that is to, I guess, to galvanize white voters, right, in those areas. And yeah. that's, that's never good. And I'm not really sure if that's something that that is a matter of nuance. <laughs> that's just, I don't know what that is. You know, how, how, how do we fight that? Well,
1: everyone wants a scapegoat, right, to blame the problems. And in, in this particular, the last two cycles that we saw, an economic scapegoat, right? Because a lot of people were feeling a lot of economic pain. And we saw a, a variety of different things happening, jobs being lost, um, a lot of things uh, being outsourced. And, you know, this, uh, this pandemic, which saw a lot of businesses close and then, you know, have the ramifications of all of that. You know, uh, people want a convenient scapegoat and uh, unfortunately china became it and that put us as as a community you know in in the in the midst of uh this larger conversation about who do we blame for all of our woes you know experienced uh, in the country and that's where you know um intentionally people will disinform so the difference between of course misinformation is that people are you know misled by you know uh, information that is provided in the community, but disinformation is done with intention and done so that they can create a sense of a false narrative. Um, uh, and, and it infiltrates our community. We're very, very vulnerable to it, uh, as I said, because a lot of our community members do trust family members, friends, our social network, and other, you know, potentially unvalidated Uh, media platforms, YouTube being a a, a very, very platform, uh, prominent platform that is used to proliferate these false narratives. Uh, and it's also commonly used uh, by our community because a lot of times we get news, international news through YouTube, and many uh, folks in our community want to stay connected to what's going on, you know, in uh, our home country. So it's used a lot and it's used as a tool uh, to, you know, to expand the reach of uh, disinformation. And unfortunately, it was used in a way that was that uh, was done You know, with a very, very perverse intent.
0: Right. And I and I would hope that campaigns in the future think about this beyond votes in the end. Right. Beyond the election, because, you know, what ends up happening is potentially violence. Yes, violence,
1: and also just our community being pulled apart, right? So the various different factions of our community—we are not a monolith. We are, a, you know, a confluence of so many different groups and cultures and religions and all of these things. And, you know, we were able to unite under a common shared experience of immigration and and having, you know, to be treated as a group under uh, categorically racist uh, discrimination, you know, in the country. And so that kind of pulled us all together uh, in this common common shared value. Um, But this type of misinformation and disinformation campaign has really torn apart um, many factions of our community. Uh, and uh, not only that, you see that, you know, between within families, right, intergenerationally, uh, within neighborhoods and communities where we live. And then, of course, our greater community is the AAPI community as well. So it, it really does, it really is weaponized to pit us, uh, you know, among ourselves to um, the different various subgroups, but also against other communities like the Black community and the Latino community. And so as an organization, we have done uh, many different focus groups, for example, uh, to really gauge how our communities are feeling with respect to the the misinformation, disinformation that's going on. And we have heard from community members that they are believing a lot of these disinformation campaigns. And so uh, it's dangerous. And it can be violent, as you said, because people don't know better and they're led to believe uh, a false narrative. And as you know, authority figures or uh, community leaders, we have to stand in solidarity against these efforts to tear apart our communities.
0: And I want to move on to how it weakens solidarity between the AAPI community and other communities like the Black community and the Latino community. But I'm curious about the factions that have formed between the within the AAPI community, something I'm not familiar with. Can, can you give me an example of that?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, there are wedge issues historically within the AAPI community. Uh, I'll give you an example is affirmative action is one that um, is a go-to wedge issue for a lot of campaigns that want to split us up as a voting block, right? So they will introduce controversial, quote-unquote, controversial concepts like affirmative action. And for many subgroups, uh, education, I mean, for our our entire community, education is so important because it is the ultimate equalizer, right? And why uh, so many people are attracted to the United States because it is the american dream is to is to be able to send your children to school and then they themselves you know can build a life that uh, is more prosperous here than uh, at home and so tackling a topic like affirmative action is very nuanced and it, we have different factions within our different subgroups, you know, the Chinese community, Korean community, uh, Japanese community, Vietnamese community. We have factions within each of our groups that really are against affirmative action because they feel like that opportunity is being taken away from them. But they don't understand that uh, as a community, uh, affirmative action actually also benefits us. Right. And the narrative, though, is that, you know, the Democrats are trying to take away your child's possibility of attending Harvard when the case can be made that uh, as a group, as a community, we actually benefit more from affirmative action because we are one of those marginalized groups. So it's really interesting that on particular issues, we are very much united and on other issues, it can be and has
0: been historically used as a wedge issue. So you were talking about the model minority myth, right? right and I right. and so are you saying that that one is that issue particularly has a, a generational divide within the AAPI community as far as you know what groups support affirmative action and which generations don't, or am I mishearing that?
1: No, that is true intergenerationally, but within our communities too, there are um, newly arrived immigrants and immigrants who have been here, you know, many generations, right? That see issues like affirmative action differently. Um, so it is one where the the narrative using affirmative action as a wedge issue actually pits the AAPI community against other issues. And I think that's what you were alluding to earlier, right? How um, uh, it actually uh, intentionally tries to pit the AAPI community against the Black community, for example, or the Latino community on that issue. Um, there are other issues, too, that are very important. And, and, and the affirmative action uh, issue does go up, you know, squarely in the heart of the model minority myth. And the, the genesis and the history of the model minority myth is nothing but racist, right, and trying to pit the API community against other communities. And so it's something that we have to do a better job of educating our populace about uh, the the history of that issue, and you know why people are using it, um, you know, to separate us uh, in terms of unity with other our other BIPOC communities. But issues like guns and climate and other things uh, can be taken apart like that as well, and uh, the playbook can be recycled. With all other issues as well, because as you know, we don't have a, an infrastructure where we can properly educate and disseminate information, accurate information to our population. And it's so, so difficult because of the various different languages and the mediums that we have to uh, be able to provide this information to that, you know, really, this is a, a calling for a different, you know, the Democratic Party to really invest in a, an evergreen 365-day outreach program, because there are so many issues and the, the issues are coming at us, you know, at, at every angle, uh, in every election. And we need to be better equipped, you know, to handle the, these narratives and to be able to fight back.
0: Absolutely. Um, well, the thing is that, you know, going on to our second topic, and they're they're very much related, because whenever you have this negative rhetoric around a specific community, and you have a country that has a gun violence problem yeah. or you know you know we have mass shootings weekly daily it feels like you know those two things are not a good combination right mm-hmm. and 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 the the statistics say that 70% of Asian American voters are su- are in support of stronger gun violence prevention legislation right mm-hmm. and you know when we talk about gun violence we don't particularly think about or people don't talk about this in relation to the Asian American community unless something really terrible happens like, you know, of course, Atlanta a few years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that I just learned was that the very first or one of the first mass shootings in America took place in 1989 when a white gunman targeted Southeast Asian children in a school in, in California. I did not know that. So this has been an issue in the AAPI community for a long time, long before Atlanta.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and I think that as a community,
1: we are very protective of our children. And as I mentioned before, we tie a lot of our family and community of prosperity to education. And so um, we view schools in particular uh, as a sanctuary, right? Uh, and we elevate teachers in our cultures, many of our cultures, we elevate teachers to be of the highest esteem. And so um, to see mass shootings at different schools, and our children being vulnerable to mass shootings, and out of control gun legislation, or gun, you know, permissibility across the country is very, very startling. And it's unsettling uh, for our community for the most part. You know, and I'm I'm hearing things like, you know, uh, various different families, are. Taking up guns and gun ownership is increasing due to the fact that they are feeling very vulnerable to attacks uh, from the anti Asian uh, hate that came about uh, during the pandemic. Of course, seeds were sowed before that as well. But because of the vulnerability, people are turning to gun ownership as a possible way of, of self-defense uh, for their families. But but studies have shown time and time again that that is not the case, right? That, that community security really lies in the hands of the community. And so we need to be able to empower the community to unite and to confront you know, these episodes of violence. And overall, I would say that families, AAPI families, are very concerned about mass shootings, and they would like to see stronger gun control regulations at the national level so that it impacts them at the state level, you know, so far as, you know, them living in a state where, There might be a stronger gun culture, right? They want the protection at the federal level. So that is an issue that's near and dear to our hearts as a community because it impacts our schools, our teachers whom we really um, hold in high regard, and then, of course, our children as well. Uh, so so that is a particular issue that's not getting a lot of resonance uh, on the party platform. and It's not getting a lot of traction among, you know, uh, gun reformists, gun control reformists. But it should, because there's a natural ally in the AAPI community
0: uh, for gun control legislation. You know, the thing that's so frustrating about the gun control and gun violence conversations is that it's the ubiquity of gun ownership in this country, which is really at the heart of the problem right mm-hmm. like someone someone's having you know an episode they're having a bad day or whatever you know whatever issue they're having you know they look to the gun as a solution, and yeah. you know other people get get hurt or killed you know as a result right and that's the problem right but but you know it's um it's it's unfortunate that so many people are responding to the fear of guns by purchasing more guns. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's a message that we need to, to get out there more often, that it's the ubiquity of guns. So you're buying a gun. I mean, th- I think there's lots of data out there that shows that, you know, gun ownership does not protect you from from gun violence, right? Right, right. I think those are families
1: that are in desperation, Right. Because they don't know what else to do, they don't see you know our elected officials speaking to them on this issue. they really don't see um, themselves being reflected in the concern of our elected officials as a community on this issue. so it's really out of you know pure desperation and again, you know as parents, we will do whatever it takes right to protect our kids and our families. But the reality of it is that it's not going to make a difference. And what is going to make a difference is to be able to, again, like you said, to make it less ubiquitous, right? So that the first thing you grab in, you know, an argument with your neighbor is not your gun. <laughs> that is a, um, a culture that we have to dismantle, right? Otherwise, we're, we're only going to see the level, intensity and frequency
0: of these mass shootings only going to increase. And there's another piece of data that I want to mention in relation to guns is that a a p i youth um they have the fastest growing firearm suicide rate many mm. other you know i think it's a yes. seventy seventy one percent increase I'm reading over the last decade which is which is a really large increase i mean what do you think is driving this? Oh, wow. I mean, you know,
1: there are many, many things that people have studied in relation to AAPI youth suicides. Um, The use of guns obviously speaks to the accessibility of guns, right? Being available to young people. As a community, we suffer from a lot of collective trauma uh, parents and grandparents carried, uh, as a, as in relation to, you know, really bad foreign policy and, you know, colonialism and wars and things like that, that have happened to our communities. And so grandparents and parents and, you know, all kinds of uh, different, uh, you know, folks in our community are carrying this intergenerational trauma with them. And they have for many years suffered in silence. And this has transferred a lot to our youth as well. So resources for, um, you know, to deal with the the mental health issues for our community, the collective trauma and healing that has to happen, uh, I think is very, very important and critical. uh, And that is also under-resourced and understudied. And so I would love to see you know, more attention being paid to this and whether they commit suicide as a result of, you know, a firearm or some other means. It, the nature of the the reason why our youth are committing suicide at such a fast clip uh, is really uh, unnerving to a lot of us and should really be sounding an alarm for, you know, for um, public health.
0: And I know that in the Black community um, seeking mental health support, you know, people generally historically have been reticent to do that. Yeah. And I don't know if it's the same in the AAPI community.
1: Oh, for sure. There's a lot of stigma around it, right? And I think that stigma extends universally to many different groups. But in particular, to the AAPI community, our youth is seen as having extreme pressure placed on them because of this need to achieve the, the American dream. And the fact that, you know, grandparents and parents have. Um, sacrifice much right to afford our young people the opportunity to to live the American dream the pressure of that the constant you know pressure from uh, internal sources like you know family members but also externally with the model minority myth and so many other things creates kind of an ecosystem where um where things like this can be very much internalized. So we do need to address it uh, across all generations within the AAPI community. But for sure, I think um, you know, we are very much under-resourced as a country when it comes to mental health. You know, One area of uh, positivity and, and light is the idea that we are going to be institutionalizing Asian American studies right, in many different cities and states across the country. And that's very hopeful because the more people understand um, our legacy and our uh, history as a community, the more that they can uh, integrate, you know, these types of conversations into the everyday narrative, uh, you know, of concerns for the
0: American electorate. Being that we are, again, you know, you talked about the 2024 election cycle a few times, what should be happening right now to, to engage the AAPI community, what what should we be seeing right now to make sure that there's you know positive turnouts next fall? Yeah, well, I hope that the campaigns have started already <laughs> and that they
1: have um, begun early and in earnest, and you know have hired people that come from our communities with the lived experiences and the languages um, to make all of these conversations accessible to our community. Uh, I do hope that um, you know there uh, there is a very very concerted effort to engage uh, policy groups and think tanks so that we can create you know, def- necessary surveys and polling and focus groups on some of these issues and really try to understand uh, and peel back the layers of the various different nuances we talked about today uh, and really get a communication strategy intact so that we can um, go out there and be united in our messaging, right, and in our, our strategies in reaching out to our, to this community. It is going to be very difficult. And so starting early is so, so crucial for success, uh, uh, you know, uh, during the presidential cycle.
0: Katie Calbota. thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And yeah, please join me again sometime. I will. I will. Thank you so much for having me.